This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, our man Bernie introduced his Medicare for All bill in Congress yesterday. Harold Meyerson will explain why the principle and the politics are great and why the bill itself is a brilliant one. Also, you've probably had this debate with your friends. Do we want Donald Trump to resign or be impeached, which would leave us with Mike Pence as president? Do we think Pence would be better or worse than Trump? Joan Walsh has been thinking about this, too. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and she's got some interesting things to say about it. First up, Tom Frank on what happened to Hillary. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, how do you lose the presidency to the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time? Hillary Clinton has written a book about her view of what happened. In fact, she called it What Happened. For comment on her book, we turn now to Tom Frank. He's written many books of his own, most recently the prescient Listen Liberal, also the classic What's the Matter with Kansas. His articles appear all over the place. These days, he's a columnist for the Guardian U.S. edition. Tom Frank, welcome back. Hey, John. Great to be here on the, the watch. You know what we call it? The watch? <laughs> the watch. The watch. Well, return with me now to July 2016. The Republican convention meeting in Cleveland nominates Donald Trump as their candidate. Please remind us why, at that point, it seemed like it should be easy for the Democrats to defeat Donald Trump. Well, their their convention, just for starters, their convention was like, you know, technically the worst of any convention <laughs> I've ever been to. Everything went wrong. You know, Ted Cruz got booed off the stage. You know, that never happens at these major party conventions. The lights malfunctioned. You know, everything went wrong. Uh, and here you've got this candidate. Actually, the convention was the high point uh, in some ways for Donald Trump. That was when he first sort of uh, sprang up in the polls. But uh, this is a guy who, you know, you just think back over the, the gaffes that this guy committed. It is as though he had a little, you know, list of all the different American, you know, demographic groups in his pocket and was going down at one and insulting them one after another, you know. <laughs> You know, all the different ethnic groups, handicapped people, uh, parents of soldiers who died in Iraq, check, check, <laughs> you know. Who, can I, who is he going to insult next? And, and, you know, my friends and I were looking at this with just, you know, our mouths hanging open. It's like, hey, this guy thinks that's how you run for, for president? It, it, was, it was crazy. And, uh, and there know. were also those polls. He was yeah. He was well behind. Now, if you go back and I went back and looked at the stories that I wrote at the time, he did bounce up uh, from time to time, and he would catch up with Hillary. But then he would um, make some incredible gaffe uh, and sink back down. Like, like <laughs> of course, everyone's favorite or or or, um, or or worst or however you want to put it. The you know the Access Hollywood tape where you know there's a, a recording from ten years ago where he's boasting about groping women. Uh, you know, and that really uh, sank the guy. 
Uh, but he came right back. So. He came right back. Well, Hillary does open her book by admitting that, quote, millions of people were counting on me, and I couldn't bear the idea of letting them down, but I did. I couldn't get the job done, and I'll have to live with that for the rest of my life, close quote. She does get that. She does. I think she feels real bad about it, but she... Uh, uh, she doesn't she doesn't ever really confess to making any mistakes of her own uh, i mean you can find them if you read between the lines uh but but this is this is a peculiar book it's the first couple of chapters of are all this her recounting you know the sort of therapy regimen that she went on after the election and i think this book is a kind of of with the exception of certain parts that we'll talk to about, I'll talk about in a minute, is is sort of a a, a therapeutic uh, exercise, I think, for her. Well, I but, have to say that uh, uh, I read I read the the book on Kindle, and at that point uh, where she says, uh, "I I let uh, people down, I couldn't get the job done, and I'll have to live with that for the rest of my life." Kindle at that point says, eight hours, one minute left in this book." What? Huh? <laughs> it's going to take you eight hours to read the rest of this book, they say. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, uh, okay. I, I had no idea. Uh, where, what page is that on? That's like on page three. Oh, uh, oh! it took me a lot more than eight hours to read the whole thing. <laughs> well, the, I'm a, I guess I'm a slow reader. I, I guess. So uh, we could see early in 2016 that it was not going to be a good year for establishment candidates. So why did Hillary decide to run in the first place? Now, you could see that, John. She she could not see that. I mean, she doesn't acknowledge anything like that in the book. Uh, she comes close to it towards the end. Uh, but Hillary says, uh, you know, this is I thought I thought this was was very interesting. If you if you skip the sort of the therapeutic chapters, the first two, and then go st- go straight to the chapter three where the narrative sort of begins, uh, and she talks about why she ran, and she says, because I thought I'd be good at the job, and then she says, because I it would give me a chance. I'm I'm going to butcher the quote here, but it would give me a chance to do the most good you know, that I've ever had an opportunity to do. So she decides she's going to be president. And then the next, uh, <laughs> right after that, the paragraph has her, you know, she decides, well, I'm, I'm going to run for president, so I better get some issues. Oh. So she calls she calls a bunch of experts and says, you know, what are the problems and what, what, what should be my solutions to those problems? And this fascinated me for all sorts of reasons, uh, chiefly because, uh, you know, every other campaign memoir that I know of uh, the issues come first. Yeah, you know, the, the candidate—it's <laughs> always—and I mean, maybe candidates are being dishonest, and Hillary is is telling it straightforwardly here. I think that might be the case, but usually the convention is for the candidates to say that they're motivated by you know concern about something or another, and you know the the, the issue is primary, and they are they are secondary. But Hillary has it the other way around. Well, her her issue was that she wanted to do good. Yeah, she wanted to do good. One of the weirder things in this book, John, and you've read it, so you'll you'll recall this. Hillary doesn't seem to know that the phrase "do gooder" is a pejorative <laughs> one in our culture. Oh dear. I mean, she says it many times. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot. And, and by the way, this is not the first book where she's done this. If I've read the Hillary Ovra, and uh, she often quotes this sort of Methodist aphorism about do all the good you can, you know. She really likes this. This is this is who she is. This is her sort of philosophy. Um, by the way, there is a, 
really interesting uh, there are a lot of interesting things in this book, but one of the most interesting is what a pious person Hillary is, which I bet most of your listeners did not know. No, we're told uh, sort of the opposite. In, in private, she's she's wild and crazy and funny and and uh, you know talks dirty. And what what are you te- what are you saying here? Uh, I mean, she talks about the Bible all the time. In the ah. <laughs> there's there's one really uh, moving, or I thought not moving, but telling scene where she's in a you know a coffee shop somewhere in the vast hinterlands and she sees a guy reading a book and she's like what are you reading and it's it's uh you know he he's he's reading a book from the bible and he and he he tells her what he's reading and she immediately starts quoting wow and and this blew my mind and it it dawned on me john i know how hillary could have won how so you know, I'm from Kansas City, and I, when I was in high school, we played a game called College Bowl, where you would answer trivia questions. This is in Kansas City. Now, the kids who went to high school in Wichita played a different game that was called Bible Bowl. Where they, <laughs> I'm serious now. They would read a quote from the Bible, or they would read a, the, the book and passage, a passage from the Bible, and you had to jump up and quote it, read the quote from memory. You're, you're telling us that everything's up to date in Kansas City. Yeah, yeah, but 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 here's the here's the thing. So when they go to set up the three presidential debates, and they're like, well, what will the format be? Well, we'll have one be a town hall debate. One will be a traditional, you know, the moderator will throw questions at you. What should the third one be? Hillary should have said Bible Bowl. <laughs> she she would have. She could have beat him. Yeah, Trump. she definitely could have beat him. She would have made a fool out of him, and she would have. You know, places like Wichita, Kansas, would have had real trouble voting for Donald Trump after <laughs> after she had whipped him at Bible Bowl. You know, yeah, you remember he was asked what his favorite book was, and of course he knew the right answer, the Bible, and then said, "Well, what book of the Bible?" And he, yeah, th- two Corinthians, he said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, classic. He took him a minute. Yeah, no, took she him. would have she would have won uh, won the hearts of of Kansans, you know. And Missourians and maybe Utahns had she had she pulled that off, but people don't even know that side of her. They don't even know she she that she she goes there. Of course, you have been arguing for years, uh, in including in your book "Listen Liberal," that working people had a legitimate beef with the Democratic Party and particularly with the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. Is there any place in the book where she admits that she may have been too close to Goldman Sachs, too close to Walmart? Oh, no, no, she does, she does not do that. That's, uh, she does not go there. She does quite the opposite. She, um, she says uh, that, uh, by the way, so take a step back here. I mean, this is 2016 when the history is written. This is this is one of the this is a great populist year. This is a, an yeah. amazing populist year with both Sanders and Trump. And uh, uh, Hillary acknowledges that, and I thought that was uh, interesting because a lot of her uh, really fervent supporters do not, and they won't acknowledge that the you know a lot of white uh, uh, well working class people in general are deserting the Democratic Party, and in fact it's the, the hemorrhaging. The Democratic Party is hemorrhaging these voters. And, um, uh, you know, by and large, a lot of people won't acknowledge that that's even happening. And Hillary does acknowledge it and is very concerned about it in the book and tries to understand why it's happening. But one thing she can't do is uh, acknowledge that there's any legitimacy behind it. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that, that would be, uh, she can't do that. Because, you know, in her mind, and she says, this, you know, basically her husband's presidency is... 
what would you say like the high watermark of democratic achievement in this in this country i mean yeah. what he did was you know he reinvigorated the democratic party he reinvented it he brought them back from from a dead end of defeat uh, you know, and he, he balanced the budget. You know, uh, no, she doesn't talk about Goldman Sachs. She doesn't talk about um, bank deregulation. She doesn't talk about NAFTA for Pete's sake. And that's, I mean, Trump. You remember Trump's speeches? Guy was talking about it every single day. Yeah. Uh, and she, she never, she does mention trade in passing in what happened. Uh, but she, she's not sorry about that. She's not changing her mind about that. And she doesn't talk about the trade deals that really hurt her, namely NAFTA and the TPP. Yeah. Um, now, never even mentioned, never even mentions the latter. Oh, either one of those, actually. One of her uh, biggest points is that she was a victim of sexism uh, in the media, uh, in the political class. Uh, what does she say about the fact that 53% of white women voted for Trump and not for the most qualified person ever to run for the presidency who yeah. also happened to be a woman? She she brushes that off. I mean, that's obviously a pretty alarming statistic yeah. uh, for Hillary Clinton. Um, but she, you know, uh, and, and by the way, you know, this is a group that, uh, uh, I mean, their their antipathy to Hillary Clinton is, I don't I don't know if it's it's that uh, easy to understand, but it's certainly not hard to understand. But Hillary, uh, she it, basically she dismisses that by saying everybody knew I wasn't going to do that well among this group. But it does surprise her how poorly she did. Uh, you know, we were I remember we were saying for months that she may lose some of the working class to to Trump, the less educated was, and more minute, southern. John, I said I said that like a hundred. I said that to anybody who was listening last. <laughs> but year. I said it a hundred uh, times. Yes, you did. Didn't you? Do it's coming back here, to me know? now. But it was sort of the conventional wisdom that she will make up for that among suburban white, formerly Republican women, and yes. therefore it'll turn out okay. She won Orange County for Pete's sake. This is Orange County, California. You are so right. Uh, yeah, and that, that's what she was looking for all over the country. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, there is, you know, just not a whole lot more of those people for the Democratic Party to win over. But uh, you know, working class people, there's a lot of them, and and you know, they re- Republicans are slowly but surely. Uh, winning them away from the Democrats and have been, John, for years. I've been writing about this for a long time. By the way, I'm done writing about it. Did I, did I tell you this? I'm no. so sick of it. Sick I, of I, it. I've written about this so many times, and the Democrats still won't listen, and the, you know they still won't talk about this in, in a straightforward way. Uh, you know, I mean, Hillary goes to these. Well, I, I mean, look, she's an intelligent woman, and she's she's wrestling with the subject, okay, all yeah. throughout this book, all throughout what happened. But she can't acknowledge the most obvious explanations, which is that these people have uh, have been alienated from the Democratic Party, uh, you know, by uh, uh, for some reason. You know, I don't know what that reason could be. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, and there she is giving her speech at... Uh, at uh, Wellesley, you know, talking about how highly educated, you know, elite college kids are the hope of the future. It's like, yeah, you know, nice going, Hillary. Mm. I, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't want to be mean. I don't, I don't want to say anything that that's 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 mean to Hillary. I think she's she tries really hard in this book, and in, I, I there's a lot of passages that I admire. Can I tell you about one? Please. There's one that's that's I wish I had written myself. She's. Um, you know, she managed to really make West Virginia angry at her with this remark about coal mining. She was going to, you know, like really hurt the coal mining industry. And guess what? You know, West Virginia gets really 
pissed off. And so she decides to go there on a campaign swing to make make amends, okay? And she's in some town, I forget what town, but they're they're out, you know, the town is out in force protesting her. And the the, the she's describing the protesters, okay? And one of them is Don Blankenship. <laughs> this is the CEO of the company that owned the Upper Big Branch Mine. Mr. Okay, Evil. All those Mis- guys died. M- Mr. And Evil. He's, he's protesting Hillary. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that just like, I was like, wow. I mean, you know, that's worth the price of admission right there. And then the, the guy went to prison, you know. Yeah. Well, yes. So if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Tom Frank. He's telling us about Hillary's new book titled What Happened. Uh of course, she has to write about Bernie in this book. I, I think she's still mad at Bernie. Yeah, I thought that was the low point of the book, uh, that her, her attacks on Bernie Sanders, because it, it, seems, uh, it seems pointless, uh, and it seems... I thought uh, the word for it is churlish, hmm. because Sanders, you will recall, um, you know, he, after, after he conceded, he endorsed her, and he campaigned on her behalf. And I was at the Democratic convention, and he, uh, you know, he gave the speech for her. It was a good speech. He cast the deciding vote to put her over the top. You know, he did all the things that the defeated candidate is supposed to do. And this is how she rewards him. I thought that was really um, ungracious. Uh, I thought that was the the uh, you know the the I thought I was embarrassed for Hillary. Let me put it that way. I, that was not a uh, that was not a classy move by her. You know, she does spend a lot of time on uh, the the fact that uh, FBI Director James Comey held that press conference just the week before Election Day, saying he was reopening the investigation of her yeah. email. And you know, I have to say, right now, I, everybody's sort of thinking, what was that thing? What was the deal with Hillary's email? I can't I quite know. remember. I had, to, I had to go back and read all up, read up on it, too, so, so I remembered. I had totally forgotten. So uh, here we're oh, here we're kind, the, here we're kind of sympathetic with her that the whole well, Hillary. That's of, well, I, I, that's one of the explanations, uh, her explanations for what happened that I think is true. Yeah, I mean that did that did have an impact. You could see it in the polls. I mean, as soon as he announced that, she started tanking. Um, but uh, it was remember what it was about. She had been Secretary of State, and when she was Secretary of State, they're they're supposed to all their emails become part of the public record. So they're supposed to use the State Department email server. Okay, yes. she didn't do that. She had her own private email server, and she only used that. And so as a result, uh, you know, her emails had you know were not in the public records, and they uh, could so not they be discovered. Could not be all of this crap. Right. And so then the question is, uh, did did somebody hack into her private email? server and what were, were national secrets or whatever it was were they exposed now my opinion is um, that was a legitimate uh, inquiry I mean she really did she made a mistake there yeah. I don't think it was a big mistake uh, I bet it you know uh, I know I live in Washington I know a lot of people who work for the government it was it was a legitimate news item Hillary says in the book this is by the way one of the weirder complaints of hers eh, maybe not weird it depends on how you look at it, it she says that the media was uh was you know was biased against her or treated her poorly and the reasoning there is that the, because the media took the email uh story seriously and i don't think that's exactly right i think the email story was a legitimate news story i think when comey uh re uh, reinst- reinstated the investigation now that was a crock that was that was 
that was ridiculous is what that was. By the way, Hillary in in uh, getting even with Comey quotes from Trump's uh Trump's the documents that Trump uh, approved in firing him. It's kind really? of a highly ironic little move, yeah, that she makes in the book, yeah. Yeah, well, she she knows it's ironic. She says so. Um, the um, the book was reviewed in the New York Times <clears throat> New York Times two days ago by Jennifer Senior. I just wanted to put to put to to read her summary of of it and see if you agree with it. She said she says uh, does it offer any new hypotheses about what doomed Clinton's campaign? No, it merely synthesizes old ones. Clinton's diagnostics are the least interesting part of the book. I wonder if you agree with that. Uh, well, it's true she doesn't say anything new. She basically, if you were, during the campaign, if you were reading the Washington Post and the New York Times op-ed pages, everything that she says about the campaign, you already know. Yeah. Okay, she's, just, she's just repeating what they said at the time and what they've said ever since then. Uh, there are revealing moments in this book. Uh, there's a lot of revealing moments in this book. Um, but not in what she says about 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 what caused her to lose. She can't come to grips with populism. She just she just cannot. Uh, and I thought that was revealing in its own way. Um, and then you know there's a lot of other interesting things. That, uh, you know if Christopher Lash was still around, he would be fasc- He 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 didn't like Hillary Clinton, but he would be fascinated by uh, uh, the, the sort of the therapeutic aspect of this. It's very 1970s. Uh, and and you know what fascinated me, John, and this is what I wrote about in the Guardian, is that she cannot understand uh, that this sort of technocratic approach uh, that she embodies. I mean, she is the ultimate technocratic candidate. She's a resume candidate, the most prepared candidate of all time, as Barack Obama said. Uh, that that approach, where you ha- you know, here's your problem, here's my nine point you know plan to solve it. That that is not you know not a winner when you're faced with yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah, and her website went went pages and pages of solution to every oh, conceivable I know. I know. problem. I know. And, and and it's like and all these people are saying, well, Hillary, you didn't propose such and such. And by the way, this is one of the funnier things she does in the book. She'll be like, yes, I did. It was point you know point twenty three out of you know thirty five. <laughs> you know. Nobody knew it, though. <laughs> you know, there's a principle in American uh, politics and in books by American politicians that elected officials can only tell the truth once they are out of office. You've read Hillary's other books. I've looked at a couple of them. They're certainly examples of the problem. She was always being, you know, miserably careful, trying not to say anything that might, you know, be counted against her in any future race. Now she's not going to run anymore. So is she done with being careful? Is she finally no, telling it like it is? No, no, and especially when it comes to history. Uh, she cannot be uh, uh, straightforward about her husband's presidency, uh, as, as I mentioned before. Uh, and she, like she, for example, um, well, free trade. You know, she cannot talk straight about free trade. She doesn't mention bank deregulation, uh, welfare reform, which was his proudest achievement. Uh, you know, she is just uh, twisting herself into a pretzel to try to get out of the, to try to you know evade the blame for this. Blame evasion is what this 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 book is really about. And um, she also the way she twists and turns to try to uh, uh, you know come up with a uh, an explanation for populism that doesn't involve the Democratic Party moving to the left. You know, this this is what she's she's trying to stave off. Yeah. 
And so she's just like all over the map, twisting and turning and doing these evasive maneuvers. Um, to her credit, she, she quotes some stuff that I didn't know about. Apparently one of her advisors, Stanley Greenberg, was telling her, you know, in no uncertain terms that she had to become uh, basically an, an economic populist. And uh, she refused to do it. <laughs> she's like no way I'm not hmm. doing that so. you know there's talk uh, we only got a couple of minutes left here a lot of the talk about this book uh, right now is that it may it's clearly therapeutic for her to get this out but for the Democratic Party as a whole this is damaging to the to the present status and future chances of the Democrats to as they say relitigating the campaign uh, bringing back the hostility of the Hillary people to the Bernie people. This is a big mistake. Bernie himself was on uh, TV, what, last night, saying what Hillary should be doing is campaigning for Medicare for all now, not you know co- complaining that she was treated unfairly by the media. I wonder if you share that view of the whole project of this book. Well, not of the whole project. People have a right to uh, write memoirs and... Uh, you know, I think she probably should, could have taken a little longer to to put it out, uh, and you know, uh, you know, uh, looked back on it with more <clears throat> wisdom. I think the the only part where I would agree with that is is the stuff about Bernie Sanders, which, as I said before, is really ungracious, yeah. and yeah. there's no uh, there's no reason for it. Uh, except for, uh, I mean, she's probably thinking about the Democratic Party in a different way than you and I are, which is she's thinking about the civil war that is now ongoing in the Democratic Party, and she wants the sort of the Clinton wing, the Democratic Leadership Council wing, uh, although the DLC doesn't exist anymore, its people are still in place, uh, and she wants them to uh, to defeat Bernie Sanders, obviously. And that, I mean, that war is 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 uh, is going; it's on right now and she obviously clearly does not want uh Sanders or people like Bernie Sanders to take over her party. Tom an Friend odd thing, an odd thing for a, a former McGovern supporter to say and do, but whatever. Whatever. Tom Frank wrote about Hillary's book What Happened for The Guardian. Thank you, Tom. Hey John, my pleasure. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Next up, would Pence be worse? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, our man Bernie introduced a Medicare for All bill yesterday. Harold Meyerson will talk about the particular brilliance of the bill he's proposed. But first, you've probably had this debate with your friends. Do we want Donald Trump to resign or be impeached, which would leave us with Mike Pence in charge? Do we think Pence would be better or worse than Trump? Joan Walsh has been thinking about this, too. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. 
Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, remind us what each side says in this debate about who is worse and who it would be easier for us to defeat. There's two ways to come at this. So you can say that he's worse, uh, which I do uh, in the nation, but you can also say that it's okay if he's a temporary president because he will be easier to defeat, as I pretty much do. I mean, I basically believe that Trump has to be impeached for many objective reasons that have nothing to do. I don't really want to think about it in terms of, uh, of the politics. I mean, that's, that's the job of Republicans. Um, you know, I think uh, the pardon of Joe Arpaio saying that law enforcement is, is exempt from the review of the, of the court system is just such a threat to the Constitution. And it's certainly not the first thing. So unequivocally, he should be impeached regardless of the political consequences. But when you break it down, I'm of the belief that although Pence is, you know, more politically experienced, more politically savvy, he's also less politically uh, dangerous uh, and charismatic. He was in big trouble when Trump picked him to be his running mate. Remember, he was behind in the polls, running for re-election. He had really distinguished himself as a total ideologue uh, and not a very effective governor. So I just would not fear him as much as I fear even a wounded Trump who can nonetheless whip up his base and perhaps surprise us again. I don't know. I mean, I think I think he... Uh, would go down to defeat in 2020 if he wasn't impeached. But I would just like I would like it all to happen sooner. And after what we went through last year, you know, none of us can be certain about about any political outcome. Well, the great thing about your piece on is Pence worse in the nation is you don't focus on the abstract issues. You've brought some actual evidence to bear on this question by looking at what Pence says about why he supports Trump's call to keep Confederates' monuments standing. It's a small thing. Lots of stuff has happened since then, but it's very revealing and significant, at least the way you analyze it. So what exactly did Mike Pence say? Oh, yes. What exactly did he say? He said, you know, when I walked back in 2010 across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with John Lewis arm in arm, and we remembered Bloody Sunday and the extraordinary progress of the civil rights movement. I can't help but think that rather than pulling down monuments, as some are wont to do, rather than tearing down monuments that have graced our cities all over this country for years, we ought to be building more monuments. So, gee, Mike Pence walked with John Lewis. That, and, arm and, in arm. And, and isn't that a good thing? Doesn't that mean we would want, prefer him as president to Donald Trump? It, I mean, you know, it, it, it's window dressing. It didn't, you know, change his position, I don't think, on racial issues or, or you know, stop him from joining the, the becoming vice president to, you know, the man running the most divisive, one of the most divisive campaigns in American history. I'm not too reassured by it, uh, John, especially when I see the way uh, he turns it into political capital for himself. Uh, yeah. And to oppose John Lewis's own stance on this issue, he's a John Lewis is a proponent of taking down these these statues. To say these statues have graced these cities for many years, I don't think African Americans would use the term "graced our cities." <laughs> I have to agree uh, with you on that. Let's connect the dots here. What does he use this carefulness to accomplish? 
Well, I think he's careful. He, you know, he, he wants to preserve, you know, a veneer of being a reasonable uh, Republican with uh, some concern for racial issues. But then he turns around and uses that modicum of political capital to defend the racism of Donald Trump. So, you know, I don't think it makes him better than Trump. You could arguably say it makes him worse. Let's move to the big picture here about Pence versus Trump and who we would rather uh, have as president. People say, a lot of my friends say, Pence would be more effective as president in achieving the Republican uh, goals. Certainly, the Koch brothers thought so. Jane Mayer of the New Yorker said on this podcast that Pence was the number one choice of the Koch brothers, who, as we know, didn't want uh, Trump. They thought Pence would be more effective in getting the traditional Republican agenda through the Republican Congress. As you have said, he would probably, he would also be easier to defeat. You pointed out that in Indiana, uh, where he was running for re-election for governor, when when um, Trump tapped him to be vice presidential candidate, we saw headlines like Trump, this is one is from Politico, Trump flirts with unpopular Pence. Some home state Republicans would be glad to see the Indiana governor abandon his reelection bid for a VP slot. So how do we balance these two things? I just don't see how he's more effective than Trump when Trump really made him his point person on Obamacare, uh, ACA repeal and, and quote, replace. Uh, he couldn't get it done. Uh, you know, I don't know that he would have, you know, he'll, he'll probably be his point person on tax reform because he's more knowledgeable and he knows he certainly knows. Uh, the House better, and to some extent the Senate as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, another problem, it's not merely Pence or Trump's lack of, of, of uh, dexterity, uh, legislative dexterity. It's also that the, the Republican Party is no longer a governing party. It can't be taken seriously. There are The splits within the party are almost as big as splits between uh, them and, and the Democratic Party. You know, there are still, there's still a core, not nearly enough, but there are still uh, Republican senators and uh, House members who see a role for government, uh, who see a role for government to help in the provision of health of health care, uh, who did not want to see Medicare uh, slashed, either the ACA expansion or the, you know, the, the longer term uh, slashing of the core program that was proposed. You know, I, I think there will be similar differences in tax reform. Uh, so he's failed as well as Trump. I think that's quite a good argument. Joan Walsh, her piece, Why Mike Pence is Worse Than Donald Trump, appears at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. Talk to you soon. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Medicare for All. Our man Bernie makes his move. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs>
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight, this is happening. Jerry quickly says that according to the Institute for Policy Studies in Prosperity Now, black and Latino people will have no wealth by 2053. How could that be? KPFK at four. Find out all about it. But first, our man Bernie introduced the Medicare for All bill in Congress yesterday. For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today, as usual, in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. As usual, it's great to be here, John. Well, first of all, the timing of Bernie's move here. Why is now the time to introduce a Medicare for All bill uh, in Congress? The Republicans control uh, the House. Uh, They control the Senate. I've even heard they control the presidency. Why not wait until the Democrats take control, uh, at least of the House, after the elections in November 2018? Well, Bernie himself, in his uh, press conference yesterday uh, laying out the bill, uh, said, and I quote, Today we begin the long and difficult struggle to end the international disgrace of the United States being the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all its people. Long and difficult struggle. Uh, I, I think uh, there's a couple reasons uh, why Bernie introduced the bill now. First, uh, because it's a long and it'll take time to, to build support for this. Second, the uh, repeated Republican efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act uh, had the uh, perverse, from the Republicans' perspective, had the uh, perverse effect of uh, increasing support not just for the ACA, but uh, for the idea that government uh, should be responsible uh, for uh, guaranteeing access to health care for all Americans. Uh, The popularity of that viewpoint has uh, risen considerably. And then third, remember Bernie ran on this as one of his yeah. signature issues. Uh, and it was just, a, you know, it was, it was anticipated that he would, uh, you know, produce this bill at a certain point. And he waited until all of the uh, Republican craziness about repealing the Affordable Care Act had played out. There's still sort of a, a little ember flickering, uh, but uh, they, it's not likely anything will happen there. And, and their uh, window of opportunity, which is very small, actually closes on September 30th when their ability to pass anything with just 51 votes ends, and they have to get 60, which they would uh, which they would never get. So he was waiting. He was waiting for that. But uh, what is interesting about all this uh, gestation period? is that in the interim, he picked up 16 of uh, Democratic senators to co-sponsor the bill. Yeah, let, is, me, let uh, me name some of them. I noticed this, too. We would expect Elizabeth Warren, but it's also endorsed by people we think of as more centrist senators, uh, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris. What does this tell us? Well, this is also the effect, uh, the after effect of uh, of uh, Bernie's uh, campaign and the rising support that I cited in the polls for uh, universal health care, which is to say the Democratic Party uh, has moved to the left on this. And uh, it, it, it's clear that most of the Democrats are planning in the Senate on running for president. 
understand that and understand they are uh, dead ducks if uh, if they don't support the bill because it has major support uh, among Democrats and uh, particularly among the kind of activist Democrats who vote in primaries. And so uh, there you are. And it's also part and parcel of uh, the leftward movement of the Democratic Party, both the base and, if we can refer to elected <laughs> officials this way, the superstructure. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I don't know that we can, but I, but I just did. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, whereas uh, 15, 20 years ago, about in the low 20% of the Democrats described themselves as, uh, as liberal, uh, now 48% do, and the uh, percentage of moderates and conservatives have declined, and and this is becoming, uh, uh, you know, beginning to be the consensus position among liberal Democrats. Now, that's not to say that, uh, you know, the 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 point of what I wrote was that uh, this is still going to be effectuated, if uh, which requires, you know, a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president with significant. Democratic majorities in both houses, but it, it's still going to be a gradual process. Uh, it, it is not going to be an overnight switch suddenly to, to Medicare for all. And, and, and so you have the interesting phenomenon that a number of the co-sponsors who were there with Bernie yesterday when he uh, announced the bill also support other legislation uh, in the Senate that is uh, is incrementally says well we extend Medicare to 55 but doesn't go beyond that so uh, and and Bernie understands that this is a process and and so all the, the, in many ways therefore the stars were aligned yeah. for his introducing the bill yesterday and I think also what he's doing here is uh, he he's not waiting for 2018 he's not waiting for 2020 because he wants to set the agenda now for the Democratic Party. Uh, the 2018 campaign is beginning, and now is the time that candidates are uh, setting out to define their positions, uh, gain support, raise money, and so on. And the the kind of realpolitik of this is now is the time to set the agenda for the Democratic Party for 2018. And, and uh, we believe, you and I believe, the Democratic Party needs to have a stronger, more coherent message than it's had in the Clinton era. Yeah, well, I'm not sure we had a Clinton era. Uh, well, I mean, the Clinton the, campaign. Uh, I'm referring to the Clinton, Clinton era as July of 2016 to <laughs> November of yeah. 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, part of this was that Hillary Clinton had a lot of good positions, but never could put anything together uh, to suggest an overarching theme. And one of the one of the things that should distress lots of Democrats, uh, is that if you look at polling of some significant subgroups in American politics, of which side are the Democrats on, your side or big business, um, a lot of people either can't say or say big business or say both or things like that there. And, uh, uh, you know, Bernie uh, is, is very much in the which side are you on camp yeah. uh, uh, and, and makes that very clear. And, and laying out this uh, uh, universal health care bill, Medicare for all, yesterday is a, is a pretty clear way of, uh, of, of stating that message. And uh, clarity of economic message is, is, is majorly important for the Democrats. I mean, look, the Democrats have, you know, are a very uh, a party with a long history 
And probably no party over uh, remotely this long a span has resented such a wide array of class interests, which over the last 40 years have been growing more and more diametrically opposed to each other. And it's the kind of class straddle you could get away with in the 1950s and 60s when business was relatively tame and unions were relatively strong. It, it, it is not what you can get away with now. And that's sort of the ultimate push uh, that, that Bernie is making and that this bill is Exhibit A of. And, of course, it was just uh, a year or two ago that the Democrats said their goal was was to fix Obamacare, not repeal and replace it, but to fix Obamacare. Uh, Obamacare certainly has problems. It does it did add something like 10 million people to the number of people with insurance cover health insurance in the more, United States but the more like 20 20 uh, 20 million yeah. people but the yeah. thank you but the number one problem with Obamacare is that it left 28 million people without insurance have i got that number right more or less uh, uh, you know in, in, and that's partly a result of John Roberts supreme court decision that gave states the discretion whether or not they could, would sign on to the Medicaid expansion. That yeah. figure would be a lot smaller uh, if uh, uh, if that decision had not come down. Uh, I mean, in states where they've been promoting it, like California, the percentage of uninsured Californians has fallen uh, from like 17% to 8%. So uh, it, it made a major contribution. And, you know, look, I mean, one of the things Bernie has been doing uh, between... Uh, uh, January 1 and uh, a couple of weeks ago, is he's been stumping the country, not only promoting uh, the concept that, that's in his Medicare for All bill, but def- you know defending the Affordable Care Act against um, uh, the Republican efforts to repeal it. I mean, yeah. Bernie is, an important point about Bernie is he does not believe the perfect is the enemy of the good. Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, he, uh, he, he has, you know, the immediate agenda, which is uh, like the party defending uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, but he's right in saying, you know, forget it. That I mean, not not forget it, but that's not enough. And uh, and yesterday we heard the that's not enough part of the message. So let's talk about the principles behind Medicare for all that make it so appealing and so important to to you and me and all of our friends. Well, first of all, it expands what Medicare covers to include things that it up to now hasn't covered, like dental, uh, eye care, hearing, uh, something like that. So, you know, if, if you're already a Medicare recipient and say, what's in it for me, uh, that's a big thing that's in it for you. Also, the fact that it requires uh, pharmaceutical companies to submit to negotiations with the government over pricing. Well, when you think about, you know, if, if you accomplish all of that, uh, you kind of have... Uh, obviated the need that many seniors feel for having a supplemental yeah. uh, private policy uh, for uh, for Medicare. So it does that. And then it it expands it in uh, the, the, the number, the America, it expands it to Americans who are not merely over 65. It ultimately expands it to everyone. But, but it does it in, in, in separate tranches. In the first year, it does it basically to kids, if you're 18 or under, and uh, people who have been in the workforce for a long time but may not be able to get uh, d- decent jobs with insurance, that is to say Americans over uh, 55. Uh, you know, so it, 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 it phases in. And then the, next, then the year after that, it's supposed to go to Americans over 45 and then Americans over 35 and then everyone who's left, which I guess is between 
18 and 35. And that and that means uh, in terms of funding it, it ramps up gradually. In terms of the transition uh, that Americans experience, most uh, those who you know, uh, most Americans who get health insurance as a result of uh, their employment, it, it it phases in that over over time. But there, there's there's even a, a, a I think a more nuanced aspect to this, and that is uh that you know uh, bernie kind of, i suspect understands that this makes his bill uh, at one point in in some ways both a, a long term and a short term i mean it 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 creates different parts and it might be easiest for instance uh for the congress to have have a a sufficient majority uh to do part 1 expand medicare uh to those who are over 55 not just 65 and to uh, 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 kids under 18. Uh, and then they can address, you know, tranche two, uh, taking from 55 to 45. And as that happens, the the immense power of insurance companies and uh, pharmaceutical companies to resist this gets winnowed down as they have fewer and fewer, uh, uh, you know, uh, people paying into them and they're Financial clout is diminished. So let me let me just underline yeah. that point. Bernie emphasizes the principle behind Medicare for all that makes it so valuable and so fundamental is health care a right for everybody. You uh, at the American Prospect emphasize a second thing. It reduces the power of capital. And let's be explicit about that since we're here on KPFK. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, <laughs> Bernie can't, uh, well, but yeah, we can. I mean, there's, there's no, there's, and that, it, it reduces its economic power and it reduces its political power because, yeah. uh, on the one hand, a, a lot of you know Wall Street, uh, the private equity and hedge funds, are invested in pharmaceutical companies. That's one reason why pharmaceutical companies have been uh, charging absurd prices uh, for, for for their drugs. It's the pressure from Wall Street. Uh, and and so it uh, you know eventually takes them uh, out of that particular game, and it takes the insurance companies out of the game. And these are huge campaign contributors uh, to uh, to Congress, uh, to precisely to forestall uh, not just reforms like uh, like this, but but more minor reforms. And I mean, in order to get the ACA passed, in order to get Obamacare passed. Uh, you know, there was no way that they could install anything about negotiating uh, on drug prices, or uh, they couldn't even set up a public option to compete with the insurance companies. Uh, so, you know, they have already this this sort of major corrupting uh, power over what Congress does, and uh, this finally takes uh, takes them out of the game. I mean, there are other ways in which they should be taken out of the game. In which private equity and hedge funds are not taken out of the game that doesn't that don't have to do with health care, uh, but it's uh, it's it, it it you know helps clean up the political process. Now I see two problems with Bernie's Medicare for All uh, proposal: a big one and a sort of a littler one. The big one is the objection from the left that uh, Medicare for All preserves private profit-making hospitals, it, it, it keeps private doctors as the, <coughs> the center of the healthcare uh, system. And the contrast here is to something we already have, the VA or the British National Health System, where the hospitals are all public, the doctors all work for the public. It's called 
socialized medicine. It's been demonized by the Republicans in the United States since, I don't know, 1948 or something like that. The VA has had some notorious problems lately, but isn't the principle that healthcare is a right and that capital should be removed from, from healthcare, isn't that better served by something like the VA, or the British National Health? Uh, I suppose it is in theory, but it's never going to get passed in in, in uh, our children's lifetime in this country. I suspect. Uh, uh, I, I think the opposition from physicians, yeah, uh, is, is just going to be too strong. Well, and that's uh, why Medicare was set up the way it was in 1964. Right, but this, you know, I mean, in order to get the whole system uh, under a single payer system, that in itself has proven to be a significant cost control factor in countries that don't have socialized medicine but still have single payer like Canada. Yeah. Uh and 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 so um you know uh the, the, say this is Bernie bowing to reality. Now the uh, other yeah. where time is flying here I want to raise the other yeah. the other uh, uh, problem not a problem of principle but of of politics uh the single biggest source of health insurance in the United States is medical insurance provided by employers. Something like 160 million people currently right. get private medical insurance through their jobs. 55% of the whole population, I, I read. Now, some of these people will be happy to quit their jobs, which they got only because they need the insurance, but others, uh, deluded as they may be, uh, will want to keep the insurance they have. This was a big problem, you'll remember, for Obamacare in two, uh, 2009. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Um, Medicare seems like it will allow you to keep your doctor, but, you know, are you sure? And we know what the Republicans are going to do with this. Uh, what do you think of the hundred... Well, look, the Republicans are going to do all kinds of things with this anyway, come what may. The Republicans did all kinds of things with the ACA, which didn't go nearly this far. They cooked up the death panels and things yeah. like that. Uh, the, 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 the fact is, under private insurance that you get with your employer, many people still have to shift their doctors and have no control over that. A uh, Medicare patient actually has a better ability to maintain his or her physician uh, than, uh, than most, uh, most people on uh, uh, private employer-provided insurance. So, you know, but it'll take time to convince people of this. Uh, We've only, we got maybe five minutes left here. I think we need to spend just a couple of minutes here on something completely different. Um, the headlines at this hour, the, uh, are they correct that the Democrats have a deal on DACA? Last time I checked the New York Times website, it said Trump now says he backs deal to protect dreamers. And the story underneath it is conservatives recoil as Trump bends on immigration. The deal, you and I talked about this here last week. This is the, a much better deal than we talked about last week. Permanent status for the Dreamers that is not tied to money to build the border wall. Where do we stand on that at, at this hour, and where will we be tomorrow morning? Well, that partly depends on the mind of Donald Trump, and anyone who wants to make predictions there uh, uh, probably shouldn't actually be uh, in, in, you know, on the media. Uh, but... Uh, um, as things stand now, uh, uh, Trump essentially uh, agreed with what uh, Pelosi and Schumer uh, proposed to him over Chinese food. Nancy and uh, Chuck. Last night. Nancy and Chuck last <laughs> night. Um, but uh, uh, two things. One, this still has to pass Congress. And uh, I have no doubt it will pass in the Senate. 
I also have no doubt that most Republicans will be really reluctant to pass it in the in the House. Uh, if uh, a lot depends on how Paul Ryan handles this. Uh, so you know it it still has to pass there then secondly uh you know it it uh it, it doesn't go all the way so far as I know what he's agreed to towards the actual eventual legalization of uh of the dreamers that would require a democratic congress uh and a democratic president to go that far, not to mention uh the other ten million of the eleven million undocumented immigrants here it does nothing for them yeah uh so um um you know if uh you know Trump sticks to what he said uh in some of his tweets later today and the uh, Pelosi and Schumer's reports of what happened last night uh that is a step forward, assuming we can get something through the house, which I think probably can happen, but maybe not easily. Uh, you know, but then there's still miles to go before uh, we can sleep easy and uh, and undocumented immigrants can. One more thing about Medicare for All. Trump used to be for it. I learned this on MSNBC last night in 2000, according to Chris Hayes. Donald Trump said, quote, the Canadian plan helps Canadians live longer and healthier than Americans. We need as a nation to re-examine the single-payer single plan, close quote. Donald Trump in 2000. Uh, Sarah Huckabee, of course, is pretty unhappy with that quote today. What uh, Do you have any comment on Donald's support for a Canadian-style single-payer program back in 2000? Well, I think if there's one thing just in the last 48 hours we should learn from Donald Trump is that given enough time and depending on who he's talking to at a given moment, he's capable of supporting anything. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, not, he's capable of not finding any distinctions between uh, the Nazis and the anti-Nazis in Charlottesville. He's capable of supporting single payer. He's capable of opposing single payer. Uh, uh, the, the consistency uh, is, is is way beyond a hobgoblin to him. Uh, so God only knows. Way beyond a hobgoblin, Harold Meyerson's report on Bernie's Medicare for All bill. You can read about it at the American Prospect online at prospect.org. Harold, thanks very much. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Tom Frank talked about Hillary's new book, What Happened? Joan Walsh answered the question, Would Pence Be Worse? Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight, this is happening. Jerry Quickly talking about the wealth of black and Latino families. If you'd like... Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.